Chapter Twenty Two of El Dorado by Baroness Orzy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in August two thousand and seven. Chapter Twenty Two. Of that there could be no question. Blakeney had more than one pied à terre in Paris, and never stayed longer than two or three days in any of these. It was not difficult for a single man, be he labourer or bourgeois, to obtain a night's lodging even in these most troublous times, and in any quarter of Paris, provided the rent, out of all proportion to the comfort and accommodation given, was paid ungrudgingly and in advance. Emigration, and above all the enormous death-roll of the past eighteen months, had emptied the apartment-houses of the great city, and those who had rooms to let were only too glad of a lodger, always providing they were not in danger of being worried by the committees of their section. The laws framed by these same committees now demanded that all keepers of lodging or apartment-houses should, within twenty-four hours, give notice at the bureau of their individual sections of the advent of new lodgers, together with a description of the personal appearance of such lodgers, and an indication of their presumed civil status and occupation. But there was a margin of twenty-four hours, which could, on pressure, be extended to forty-eight, and, therefore, any one could obtain shelter for forty-eight hours, and have no questions asked, provided he or she was willing to pay the exorbitant sum usually asked under the circumstances. Thus Blakeney had no difficulty in securing what lodgings he wanted, when he once more found himself inside Paris, at somewhere about noon of that same Monday. The thought of Hastings and Tony speeding on towards Malte, with the royal child safely held in Hastings' arms, had kept his spirits buoyant, and caused him for a while to forget the terrible peril in which Armand St. Just's thoughtless egoism had placed them both. Blakeney was a man of abnormal physique and iron nerve, else he could never have endured the fatigues of the past twenty-four hours, from the moment when, on the Sunday afternoon, he began to play his part of furniture remover at the temple, to that when, at last, on Monday at noon, he succeeded in persuading the sergeant at the Mayo Gate that he was an honest stonemason residing at Neuilly, who was come to Paris in search of work. After that matters became more simple. Terribly footsore, though he would never have admitted it, hungry and weary, he turned into an unpretentious eating-house and ordered some dinner. The place when he entered was occupied mostly by labourers and workmen, dressed very much as he was himself, and quite as grimy as he had become after having driven about for hours in a laundry-cart and in a coal-cart, and having walked twelve kilometres, some of which he had covered whilst carrying a sleeping child in his arms. Thus Sir Percy Blakeney, baronet, the friend and companion of the Prince of Wales, the most fastidious fop the salons of London and Bath had ever seen, was in no way distinguishable outwardly from the tattered, half-starved, dirty, and out-at-elbows products of this fraternising and equalising republic. He was so hungry that the ill-cooked, badly-served meal tempted him to eat, and he ate on in silence, seemingly more interested in boiled beef than in the conversation that went on around him but he would not have been the keen and daring adventurer that he was, if he did not all the while keep his ears open for any fragment of news that the desultory talk of his fellow-diners was likely to yield to him. Politics were, of course, discussed—the tyranny of the sections, the slavery that this free republic had brought on its citizens. The names of the chief personages of the day were all mentioned in turns—Fouquier-Tanville, Santerre, Danton, Robespierre. Heron and his sleuth-hounds were spoken of with execrations quickly suppressed, but of little Capet not one word. Blakeney could not help but infer that Chauvelin, Heron, and the commissaries in charge were keeping the escape of the child a secret for as long as they could. He could hear nothing of Armand's fate, of course. The arrest, if arrest there had been, was not likely to be bruited abroad just now. 
Blakeney, having last seen Armand in Chauvelin's company, whilst he himself was moving the Simon furniture, could not for a moment doubt that the young man was imprisoned, unless, indeed, he was being allowed a certain measure of freedom, whilst his every step was being spied on, so that he might act as a decoy for his chief. At thought of that, all weariness seemed to vanish from Blakeney's powerful frame. He set his lips firmly together, and once again the light of irresponsible gaiety danced in his eyes. He had been in as tight a corner as this before now. At Boulogne his beautiful Marguerite had been used as a decoy, and twenty-four hours later he had held her in his arms on board his yacht, the Daydream. As he would have put it in his own forcible language, "'Those demmed murderers have not got me yet!' The battle, mayhap, would this time be against greater odds than before, but Blakeney had no fear that they would prove overwhelming. There was in life but one odd that was overwhelming, and that was treachery but of that there could be no question. In the afternoon Blakeney started off in search of lodgings for the night. He found what would suit him in the Rue de l'Arcade, which was equally far from the House of Justice as it was from his former lodgings. Here he would be safe for at least twenty-four hours, after which he might have to shift again. But for the moment the landlord of the miserable apartment was over-willing to make no fuss and ask no questions, for the sake of the money which this aristo in disguise dispensed with a lavish hand. Having taken possession of his new quarters, and snatched a few hours of sound, well-deserved rest, until the time when the shades of evening and the darkness of the streets would make progress through the city somewhat more safe, Blakeney sallied forth at about six o'clock, having a threefold object in view. Primarily, of course, the threefold object was concentrated on Armand. There was the possibility of finding out at the young man's lodgings in Montmartre what had become of him. Then there were the usual inquiries, that could be made from the registers of the various prisons, and thirdly, there was the chance that Armand had succeeded in sending some kind of message to Blakeney's former lodgings in the Rue de Saint-Germain-Luxois. On the whole, Sir Percy decided to leave the prison registers alone for the present. If Armand had actually been arrested, he would almost certainly be confined in the Châtelet prison, where he would be closer to hand for all the interrogations to which, no doubt, he would be subjected. Blakeney set his teeth, and murmured a good, sound British oath, when he thought of those interrogatories. Armand Saint-Just, highly strung, a dreamer, and a bundle of nerves! How he would suffer under the mental rack of questions and cross-questions, cleverly laid traps to catch information from him unawares! His next objective, then, was Armand's former lodging, and from six o'clock until close upon eight, Sir Percy haunted the slopes of Montmartre, and, more especially, the neighbourhood of the Rue de la Croix Blanche, where Armand had lodged these former days. At the house itself he could not inquire as yet. Obviously it would not have been safe. To-morrow, perhaps, when he knew more, but not to-night. His keen eyes had already spied at least two figures clothed in the rags of out-of-work labourers like himself, who had hung with suspicious persistence in this same neighbourhood, and who, during the two hours that he had been in observation, had never strayed out of sight of the house in the Rue de la Croix Blanche. That these were two spies on the watch was, of course, obvious. But whether they were on the watch for Saint-Just, or for some other unfortunate wretch, it was at this stage impossible to conjecture. Then, as from the Tour de Dame, close by, the clock solemnly struck the hour of eight, and Blakeney prepared to wend his way back to another part of the city, he suddenly saw Armand walking slowly up the street. The young man did not look either to right or left. He held his head forward on his chest, and his hands were hidden underneath his cloak. When he passed immediately under one of the street-lamps, Blakeney caught sight of his face. It was pale and drawn. 
Then he turned his head, and for the space of two seconds his eyes across the narrow street encountered those of his chief. He had the presence of mind not to make a sign or to utter a sound. He was obviously being followed. But in that brief moment Sir Percy had seen in the young man's eyes a look that reminded him of a hunted creature. "'What have those brutes been up to with him, I wonder?' he muttered between clenched teeth. Armand soon disappeared under the doorway of the same house where he had been lodging all along. Even as he did so, Blakeney saw the two spies gather together like a pair of slimy lizards, and whisper excitedly to one another. A third man, who obviously had been dogging Armand's footsteps, came up and joined them after a while. Blakeney could have sworn loudly and lustily, had it been possible to do so without attracting attention. The whole of Armand's history in the past twenty-four hours was perfectly clear to him. The young man had been made free that he might prove a decoy for more important game. His every step was being watched, and he still thought Jeanne Lange in immediate danger of death. The look of despair in his face proclaimed these two facts, and Blakeney's heart ached for the mental torture which his friend was enduring. He longed to let Armand know that the woman he loved was in comparative safety. Jean Lange first, and then Armand himself, and the odds would be very heavy against the Scarlet Pimpernel. But that Marguerite should not have to mourn an only brother, of that Sir Percy made oath. He now turned his steps towards his own former lodgings by Saint-Germain-Luxrois. It was just possible that Armand had succeeded in leaving a message there for him. It was, of course, equally possible that when he did so Heron's men had watched his movements, and that spies would be stationed there too on the watch. But that risk must, of course, be run. Blakeney's former lodging was the one place that Armand would know of to which he could send a message to his chief, if he wanted to do so. Of course, the unfortunate young man could not have known until just now that Percy would come back to Paris, but he might guess it, or wish it, or only vaguely hope for it. He might want to send a message, he might long to communicate with his brother-in-law, and, perhaps, feel sure that the latter would not leave him in the lurch. With that thought in his mind, Sir Percy was not likely to give up the attempt to ascertain for himself whether Armand had tried to communicate with him or not. As for spies, well, he had dodged some of them often enough in his time. The risks that he ran to-night were no worse than the ones to which he had so successfully run counter in the temple yesterday. Still keeping up the slouchy gait peculiar to the out-at-elbows working-man of the day, hugging the houses as he walked along the streets, Blakeney made slow progress across the city. But at last he reached the façade of Saint-Germain-Luxrois, and, turning sharply to his right, he soon came in sight of the house which he had only quitted twenty-four hours ago. We all know that house, all of us who are familiar with the Paris of those terrible days. It stands quite detached, a vast quadrangle, facing the Quai de l'École and the river, backing on the Rue Saint-Germain-Luxrois, and shouldering the Carrefour des Trois-Mains. The porte cochère so-called, is but a narrow doorway, and is actually situated in the Rue Saint-Germain-Luxrois. Blakeney made his way cautiously right round the house. He peered up and down the quay, and his keen eyes tried to pierce the dense gloom that hung at the corners of the Pont Neuf, immediately opposite. Soon he assured himself that, for the present, at any rate, the house was not being watched. Armand, presumably, had not yet left a message for him here, but he might do so at any time, now that he knew that his chief was in Paris and on the lookout for him. Blakeney made up his mind to keep this house in sight. This art of watching he had acquired to a masterly extent, and could have taught Heron's watchdogs a remarkable lesson in it. At night, of course, it was a comparatively easy task. 
There were a good many unlighted doorways along the quay, whilst a street-lamp was fixed on a bracket in the wall of the very house which he kept in observation. Finding temporary shelter under various doorways or against the dank walls of the houses, Blakeney set himself resolutely to a few hours' weary waiting. A thin, drizzly rain fell with unpleasant persistence, like a damp mist, and the thin blouse which he wore soon became wet through, and clung hard and chilly to his shoulders. It was close on midnight, when at last he thought it best to give up his watch, and to go back to his lodgings for a few hours' sleep. But at seven o'clock the next morning he was back again at his post. The porte-cochere of his former lodging-house was not yet open. He took up his stand close beside it. His woollen cap pulled well over his forehead, the grime cleverly plastered on his hair and face, his lower jaw thrust forward, his eyes looking lifeless and bleary, all gave him an expression of sly villainy, whilst the short clay pipe stuck at a sharp angle in his mouth, his hands thrust into the pockets of his ragged breeches, and his bare feet into the mud of the road, gave the final touch to his representation of an out-of-work, ill-conditioned, and supremely discontented loafer. He had not very long to wait. Soon the porte-cochere of the house was opened, and the concierge came out with his broom, making a show of cleaning the pavement in front of the door. Five minutes later a lad, whose clothes consisted entirely of rags, and whose feet and head were bare, came rapidly up the street from the quay, and walked along looking at the houses as he went, as if trying to decipher their number. The cold grey dawn was just breaking, dreary and damp, as all the past days had been. Blakeney watched the lad as he approached, the small naked feet falling noiselessly on the cobblestones of the road. When the boy was quite close to him, and to the house, Blakeney shifted his position and took the pipe out of his mouth. "'Up early, my son,' he said gruffly. "'Yes,' said the pale-faced little creature. "'I have a message to deliver at number nine rue saint germain luxrois It must be somewhere near here.' "'It is. You can give me the message.' "'Oh, no, citizen,' said the lad, into whose pale, circled eyes a look of terror had quickly appeared. "'It is for one of the lodgers in number nine. I must give it to him.' With an instinct which he somehow felt could not err at this moment, Blakeney knew that the message was one from Armand to himself, a written message too, since, instinctively, when he spoke, the boy clutched at his thin shirt, as if trying to guard something precious that had been entrusted to him. "'I will deliver the message myself, Sonny,' said Blakeney gruffly. "'I know the citizen for whom it is intended. He would not like the concierge to see it.' "'Oh, I would not give it to the concierge,' said the boy. "'I would take it upstairs myself.' "'My son,' retorted Blakeney, "'let me tell you this. You are going to give that message up to me, and I will put five whole livres into your hand.' Blakeney, with all his sympathy aroused for this poor, pale-faced lad, put on the airs of a ruffianly bully. He did not wish that message to be taken indoors by the lad, for the concierge might get hold of it, despite the boy's protests and tears, and after that Blakeney would perforce have to disclose himself before it would be given up to him. During the past week the concierge had been very amenable to bribery. Whatever suspicions he had had about his lodger, he had kept to himself for the sake of the money which he received. But it was impossible to gauge any man's trend of thought these days from one hour to the next. Something, for aught Blakeney knew, might have occurred in the past twenty-four hours to change an amiable and accommodating lodging-house-keeper into a surly or dangerous spy. Fortunately the concierge had once more gone within. There was no one abroad, and if there were, no one would probably take any notice of a burly, ruffian brow-beating a child. "'Allons,' he said gruffly, "'give me the letter, or that five livres goes back into my pocket.' Five livres!' exclaimed the child, with pathetic eagerness. "'Oh, citizen!' 
The thin little hand fumbled under the rags, but it reappeared again empty, whilst a faint blush spread over the hollow cheeks. "'The other citizen also gave me five livres,' he said humbly. "'He lodges in the house where my mother is concierge. It is in the Rue de la Croix Blanche. He has been very kind to my mother. I would rather do as he bade me.' "'Bless the lad!' murmured Blakeney under his breath. "'His loyalty redeems many a crime of this godforsaken city. Now I suppose I shall have to bully him after all.' He took his hand out of his breeches' pocket. Between two very dirty fingers he held a piece of gold. The other hand he placed quite roughly on the lad's chest. "'Give me the letter,' he said harshly, or—he pulled at the ragged blouse, and a scrap of soiled paper soon fell into his hand. The lad began to cry. "'Here,' said Blakeney, thrusting the piece of gold into the thin, small palm. "'Take this home to your mother, and tell your lodger that a big, rough man took the letter away from you by force.' Now run, before I kick you out of the way." The lad, terrified out of his poor wits, did not wait for further commands. He took to his heels and ran, his small hand clutching the piece of gold. Soon he had disappeared round the corner of the street. Blakeney did not at once read the paper. He thrust it quickly into his breeches' pocket, and slouched away slowly down the street, and thence across the Place du Carousel, in the direction of his new lodgings in the Rue de l'Arcade. It was only when he found himself alone in the narrow, squalid room which he was occupying, that he took the scrap of paper from his pocket, and read it slowly through. It said, "'Percy, you cannot forgive me, nor can I ever forgive myself. But if you only knew what I have suffered for the past two days, you would, I think, try and forgive. I am free, and yet a prisoner. My every footstep is dogged. What they ultimately mean to do with me I do not know.' and when I think of Jean, I long for the power to end mine own miserable existence. Percy! She is still in the hands of those fiends. I saw the prison register. Her name written there has been like a burning brand on my heart ever since. She was still in prison the day that you left Paris. To-morrow, to-night, mayhap, they will try her, condemn her, torture her, and I dare not go to see you, for I would only be bringing spies to your door. But will you come to me, Percy? It should be safe in the hours of the night, and the concierge is devoted to me. To-night at ten o'clock she will leave the porte-cochere unlatched. If you find it so, and if on the ledge of the window immediately on your left, as you enter, you find a candle alight, and beside it a scrap of paper with your initials, S.P., traced on it, then it will be quite safe for you to come up to my room. It is on the second landing, a door on your right. That, too, I will leave on the latch." but in the name of the woman you love best in all the world, come at once to me then, and bear in mind, Percy, that the woman I love is threatened with immediate death, and that I am powerless to save her. Indeed, believe me, I would gladly die even now but for the thought of Jean, whom I should be leaving in the hands of those fiends. For God's sake, Percy, remember that Jean is all the world to me." "'Poor old Armand,' murmured Blakeney, with a kindly smile directed at the absent friend. "'He won't trust me even now.' He won't trust his Jean in my hands. Well, he added after a while, after all, I would not entrust Marguerite to anybody else either. End of chapter 22